Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hi, welcome to another episode of The Victory Kitchen. Before we get started in today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about something exciting, a new development. I am going to be starting a Patreon account. If you're not familiar with Patreon, Patreon is a site where creators can go and share content with their fans and in return, fans can support them and and get exclusive perks in return. So it's a really cool program for um, my Patreon account um, based on the tier among the benefits uh, you'll be able to receive are you know, three exclusive vintage recipes every month from my huge wartime and vintage cookbook collection, voting for which wartime cookbooks you want me to feature in my podcast, plus you know more voting things I come up with, uh, patron shout outs in my podcast episodes, bi-monthly video flip throughs of a wartime cookbook in my collection where you can view the books in more detail, Plus, patron-only merch, including stickers, mugs, totes, and t-shirts via the patron loyalty program. I am just so appreciative of all the love and support from my listeners, and I wanted to be able to give back to you in a little extra way, and also have another way that you could support me. So uh, if this is something that interests you, just uh, keep your ear out for uh, the official announcement for when I've launched it's not happening quite yet. I just have to do a few more things, but uh, it is coming soon. All right. So for today's episode, it is number 22. We are going to be looking into a darker side of food and agriculture in wartime. And we are going to be discussing the Brocero program. To be more specific, this was the importation of Mexican laborers from Mexico into the United States to help with the wartime labor shortage. And I wanted to say up front that there will be some things that I'm going to gloss over or be vague about just because I know that some of my listeners are a younger audience and I want to keep my podcast friendly for all ages. So if you'd like to know more in depth about this topic, please see my resources on my blog for a complete list of books, websites, and oral histories, there is a rich amount of information and um, more is being researched on this topic as we speak. Um, it's uh, an expanding uh, topic of learning and history right now. So um, definitely go to my blog and check out those resources. Now, in previous episodes, we've talked about the problem that agriculture had during World War II of securing agricultural labor. Thousands of men were joining up for the military. High-paying defense, industrial, and factory jobs were leeching away any other migrant and agricultural workers. By 1942 and 43, the situation was getting really bad to the point where farmers were desperate for labor. In the Northwest, where irrigation had made states like Idaho Oregon and Washington huge growers, but they still had scattered populations. Organizations like the Women's Land Army weren't as functional, so they used local labor as much as they could, but it wasn't enough. In fact, I had read that they even used 
uh, prisoners from their local prisons as uh, labor because they just were so desperate for people to get in the fields. And of course, the situation is uh, a little bit more complicated than that, but that's kind of a general overview of the way the labor was at the time. In his book, Mexican Labor and World War II, Braceros in the Pacific Northwest, 1942 to 1947, Erasmo Gamboa outlines the farm labor crisis at the beginning of the war. He says, One farm operation alone advertised for no fewer than 5,000 workers. Worried by the potential loss, local schools closed in order to free the students to assist with the harvest. One school superintendent tested parent opinion on school closures, and in spite of a vigorous no vote, the hops growers got students released for two weeks anyway. And then later he mentions that the state of Washington began penalizing school districts for when they were in session, but the students were in the fields. So this kind of highlights in this region of the country that they were really uh, so desperate that they were just pulling students out of school just to work in the fields. They didn't care because <laughs> they just were, they needed to get these crops harvested and, um, risking the wrath of the parents, I guess, and of the school superintendent. So um, it was just that dire. And the the migrant workers that had been there before were no longer there. The farm laborers that they could have depended on mostly before just weren't there anymore because they were in other jobs. They had moved on to defense jobs and industrialized jobs. Um, and joined up. So it was pretty desperate times. They weren't only using students. They closed bars and restaurants early to encourage local residents to help in the fields. They did everything they could to exhaust the local labor supply, and it still wasn't enough. Then they started to talk about bringing in labor from Mexico. It had been done during World War I. On the Bracero side, it had been a terrible experience. On the U.S. side, it was a horrible, mishandled failure, but the U.S. wanted to try it again. Some farmers were in favor of it. Many were against it. The ones who were against it were afraid it would steal away jobs from local folks. Let's take a look at this case study of the problems one area in Oregon was facing. This is from a newspaper article from the Capital Journal out of Salem, Oregon, dated the 3rd of June, 1943. It says, do Salem and Marion County want from 500 to 1,000 Mexican laborers camped in this vicinity for the harvest season during the next four months or so? That is a question which can only be answered by the way men, women, and children turn out to harvest the crops this summer, says County Agent Robert E. Reeder, on whom has been reposed the responsibility by the government this year of seeing there is sufficient labor drawn from various walks of life to see that the crops are saved and turned over to the processors. Um, then it goes on to talk about how there's cherries to be picked, strawberries to be picked, and then it goes into detail about the bean outlook. In beans, the outlook is a little brighter for the platoon system, with about 400 students lined up for the platoons, but that is only a fraction of the 2,500 or more children who will be needed in that harvest. This is in addition to the part-time men and women. We also will be in the middle of the pea harvest next week. Peas will be packed by the Ray Mailing Company at Woodburn, and about 60 viners will be wanted at Dayton. These must be men with strong backs. 
The cannery will furnish transportation for the 60 men for about 20 days, these going in shifts of 15 men for four-hour shifts, and it is hoped to secure these from Salem. These are some of the problems. It seems to be up to the men and women and children of the county to respond. Otherwise, if the crops are to be saved, it will be essential to import Mexicans and the government will import them if there is danger of losing the crops. We are all on the spot and the answer will have to come from the local people who are willing to assist. So you can kind of sense the note of desperation that uh, is in this article. They're just begging the local people, please step up. Please help us harvest these crops or else the government will step in and import, you know, outside labor. Do we really want that? And uh, just looking at these numbers of how many people they need and just kind of the tone of the article, it makes you wonder, like, is this labor actually there? Did they get these people to come and harvest these crops? And this was just one case of this shortage of labor. This was all over the country. This shortage of labor was everywhere, especially in places like California and in the Southwest and in other places. There just there was just such a shortage of labor. We do talk about that with the Women's Land Army, how that helped. But like I said a little bit earlier, in some places where there were not not a huge populations to pull from, the Women's Land Army didn't always function in the best way for that area so they really did need extra that extra help so this is where the Brocero program comes in what was the Brocero program well first of all what does Brocero mean <laughs> uh, Brocero is a Spanish term meaning I've come across different uh, interpretations um, one meaning manual laborer or someone who labors using his arms Officially, this program was referred to as the Mexican Farm Labor Program. It was created through executive order on August 4th, 1942, to aid American farmers by boosting the available farm labor. This was done through an agreement between the U.S. and Mexican governments to bring Mexican agricultural workers into the U.S. on temporary work contracts. So why was this needed? Well, we've talked about this a little bit. A severe farm labor shortage. Lots of labor going into industry, men were enlisting, etc. Local help just wasn't there. The risk of losing crops was huge. Some crops were being tilled into the ground. Some farmers were just starting to plant less because they thought, well, I don't have the labor, so I'm just going to plant less. This kind of behavior was not good in a time of war. So something had to be done to get the labor needed to the farmers. Now, you might know by now, I like getting into the nitty gritty. So I really wanted to look at the terms of the contract with these workers that were coming from Mexico. And this book by Erasmo Gamboa really outlines this very well. He goes into great detail. I'm so grateful for this book because it is the only one like it out there that delves specifically into World War II. So I am so grateful for his work. So how it worked was um, the employment was exclusively in agriculture. They did also use Mexican laborers for the railroads, but that was a bit separate. They even had like separate kind of recruiting places, but it was kind of under the same big umbrella. 
It was on the basis of a written contract that was written in English and Spanish between the worker and the employee. The worker was guaranteed wages equal to the prevailing amount in the area, but not less than 30 cents per hour for a minimum of three quarters of the duration of the contract. Workers were guaranteed the right to organize among themselves, but not to strike. (laughs) Um, Each worker would have 10% of his earnings deducted and deposited in a savings fund payable upon his return to Mexico. Workers would be provided adequate housing and sanitary conditions. They were free to purchase merchandise wherever they pleased. Later in 1943, there was a modification to the agreement that allowed the Mexican consul and Mexican labor inspectors to intervene in behalf of Mexican workers, as well as a change stating that they had a right to be fed for free if they worked a certain amount of time every day, except Sunday. And braceros were not to be used as strike breakers. They were also to be given free transportation back to Mexico at the end of their contract. So the Office of Labor within the USDA's War Food Administration was in charge of implementing the Mexican Farm Labor Program. And much of the actual day-to-day handling of the program, including the placement of workers, came down to the extension service. The type of work that they did, well, it what was reserved for them was the most menial back-breaking jobs that local labor wasn't willing to do. And a lot of this was called stoop labor, the kind where you had to kind of stoop over to do it. So that's a little bit about the contracts that were drawn up for the Bracero workers. Mr. Gamboa also detailed how farmers went about requesting these Mexican laborers for work. Which I found really fascinating because this is something that I haven't seen um, in, you know, all the, the research online and stuff. They don't really go into these kind of details. So this was very interesting to me. Farms were required to organize into farm labor associations, which functioned only for entering into contracts with Mexican workers. In 1942, individual farms requested the labor that they needed. But this created a huge amount of paperwork and encouraged labor hoarding. So in 1943, they made a a change. It required that the farmers within the association pool their labor needs and apply with one request for the Mexican workers required. So these farm labor associations were pretty simple. Growers paid a small annual fee of 5 to $10 to cover operation costs and then a flat fee or a one-time assessment based on their crop acreage for each worker delivered by the association. So then other than that, the farmers were expected to abide by the organization's rules and to comply with the Mexican work agreement. The Farm Labor Association eventually took on other roles, such as the feeding of the workers, handling the payroll of the workers for the association members, employment, and sometimes they owned labor camps. Mostly, though, they were responsible for acquiring the Mexican labor that the members needed, which was very useful considering every farmer's labor needs and lengths of time they needed the labor were different. So a cherry grower would have different labor needs than a potato farmer. That's a very simple example, but (laughs) kind of gives you a good idea. 
Now, an interesting development was in 1943, the Secretary of Agriculture allowed grower representatives to travel to Mexico to help the War Food Administration in selecting workers. This way, they could screen the workers in Mexico, ensuring that only able, experienced, and healthy individuals received contracts. This made it so that the the system was very quick and efficient um, so that the growers representative was down in Mexico handpicking the uh, workers that they wanted. And then when the requests came through, they were able to send these workers up to the places that they needed them. And it became a pretty efficient system. So by the time all of this was in place, a request for workers would be put in, at least in the Northwest, this is how it worked. And four to six weeks later, the workers would arrive. Now, on Mexico's side of things, Mr. Gamboa explains how things worked. He says, across the border, the search for the men was carried out through newspapers, radio, and word of mouth, and originated in the small towns and villages of Mexico's central plateau. Once alerted to the need of U.S. agriculture, prospective workers enlisted at a selection center located at the National Stadium in Mexico City. Theoretically, workers were required to obtain a permit from their town or village mayor prior to departing for Mexico City. In practice, however, countless individuals rushed to the assembly center on their own initiative with the expectation of obtaining one of a limited number of contracts. In 1943, a multitude of men rushed to enlist in the Bracero program, causing severe problems for the city, the government, and the applicants themselves. And he he later explains that part of this was because, you know, returning Braceros were kind of over-exaggerating, you know, the benefits of this program. But it was a real opportunity for steady work and uh, pay. And so that was definitely a draw for all of these men rushing to the city for these contracts. Now, the next step in the process to becoming a Bracero was... Uh, a medical examination. Now, I have three different accounts of this part of the process because they each tell a different part of the story. And I thought it was important to read all three just because um, of the different points of view. The first one I wanted to read is from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch out of Missouri from August 12, 1945. So this is from a United States newspaper perspective. It says, Before being shipped to the United States, the selected braceros are sent to two processing centers in the north of Mexico, where they receive careful physical checkups and their final papers. In these two final processing centers, the men are x-rayed for tuberculosis, vaccinated, and given careful physical examinations by United States Army doctors. If they pass, they are photographed and fingerprinted, their personal history obtained by United States and Mexican immigration officers, and their signatures affixed to the contracts. Every man is given special shoe ration stamps and his railroad ticket. Okay, so that seems pretty straightforward, right? Um, yeah. Well, in contrast, an oral history given by Felipe Pevon Munoz, and I apologize if I mispronounced that. Um, he recounted his medical exam as being much more invasive, including a rectal exam, lice check, fumigation, a shower, blood work, and an inspection while in the nude. 
While talking with other Braceros later and hearing about their negative experiences, he explains how they were unaware that they had any rights. And that's making reference to just being a Mexican laborer in the United States in general um, about them having any rights. So that's different a little bit from the newspaper account. And then in, um, in his book, Mr. Gamboa explains the health examinations this way. At the assembly center, the workers were interviewed by the War Food Administration about their qualifications and experience in agriculture. If qualified, they were required to pass through comprehensive health and physical examinations, including chest x-rays and serological tests for venereal disease. Those that were acceptable were then photographed and vaccinated against smallpox and had the contract and working conditions explained for their signature. If the men accepted, the U.S. immigration authorities then issued the necessary entry permits and the Office of Labor dispersed individual ration books. So all of those put together um, kind of gives you the picture of how these men pass through these different tests uh, before they were able to enter the United States to work as agricultural laborers. On September 27th, 1942, the first Mexican workers arrived in Los Angeles, California. So that is when the first ones came. Thousands upon thousands arrived later to help with the war labor shortage. Now we're going to be talking about the expectations versus the realities. And this is where the American ideals and the newspaper reports paint one picture But when you dig into the real life experiences of the Mexican workers, it's quite another picture. And so I'm going to be discussing a few of, you know, the expectations of, you know, what they were reporting in newspapers and then mostly uh, focusing on what actually happened, what a lot of these men actually went through and what their experiences were really like. Now for these experiences, I'm going to be pulling from um, a couple newspaper articles, and then I'm gonna be drawing a lot from Mr. Gamboa's book just because he details so well, you know, uh, a lot of the experiences of what the laborers went through. And then I uh, also have a couple oral histories that I um, am also going to be reading from. First, we have an article from The Courier out of Waterloo, Iowa, and this is a report that actually comes out of Mexico City. It's dated the 5th of July, 1944, and it is an article entitled, Mexicans Work in U.S. to Ease Labor Shortage. Government Sends 100,000 Men to Work as Farmhands and on Railroads. And overall, this article is pretty positive. It's definitely in favor of the Mexican farm labor program. And does kind of lay out like what the program is and where they're going, you know, how it kind of all works. But um, this part kind of stood out to me. It says Mexicans need the money. Most of the men are delighted with their experience in the U.S. They make more money many times over than they could earn in Mexico. Their families are better provided for. And in some cases, a small capital is available to buy a farm at home or farm machinery. Most men send part of their pay to their families, and when the first money arrives here from an absent bracero, the rejoicing is great and sometimes moving. Not everyone in Mexico has enough money. 
Naturally, there have been some dissatisfied men. Some of these have come home and told stories of discrimination and lack of cooperation from Mexican consuls in the States. The Department of Foreign Affairs recently took several such reports and flatly denied them. The department made use of the occasion to reaffirm the government's satisfaction with the whole plan. Now, this is a little suspicious just because, you know, if men are coming back and reporting discrimination, I mean, coming from our point of view in modern day, we know that they probably weren't lying. um, And the government in Mexico, they wanted this program to succeed, no doubt, and the U.S. as well. So squashing any, you know, negative things about the program was in their best interest. So that's kind of where, you know, I'm kind of seeing this article coming from. Uh, They don't want there to be any negative press about it. And since this article is coming from a very positive point of view, you know, it's interesting that they're even putting this in there, but probably saying, hey, there were some people saying there's negative things, there's discrimination, but you know what? It's not true. So... (laughs) I thought that was very interesting. The second interesting part is that they're really pushing and um, highlighting the fact that they're making really good money and it's a cause for rejoicing for a lot of Mexican families. And no doubt that this was the draw for a, a lot of these Mexican laborers for going to the U.S. This was a big blessing for their families, but it's just kind of how they're phrasing it um, is also a very interesting and um, just kind of adds to the positive message and propaganda of this particular article. So going back to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, August 45 article, it says, according to officials of Mexico's Ministry of Labor, the Bracero program is strengthening friendly relationships between Mexico and the United States. Mexicans by the thousands are getting acquainted with their neighbors north of the border. Workers like themselves, they are earning equal pay under good living conditions. American workers are finding that the Mexicans are good, industrious, and friendly people. So this paints a rosy picture. And um, most of the time, this was uh, far from the truth. And what I mean by that is um, the friendly uh, neighboring country thing was really kind of hiding the discrimination and prejudice that people felt. And that they acted on. Also, that they're living under good conditions with uh, earning equal pay. Uh, Not so much. (laughs) And we will get into that. And if we think about these individual men um, coming from various parts of Mexico into a completely different country with a different language, how overwhelming that might have been. I really like how Mr. Gamboa talks about this in his book. He says, although the men came from throughout Mexico, the greater number were from the rural, least developed, and more isolated regions. Furthermore, they were of the lower socioeconomic classes with life experiences limited to their own localities. This meant that in spite of the fact that the contract was explained to them before they affixed their signatures, most of the men did not have a rudimentary understanding of the terms and conditions. So someone from a tiny village trying to comprehend being away from their family for the first time and becoming accustomed to a strange language, different work ethics of different farmers, and all the other cultural factors of living in a different country. I mean, you can imagine how it would have been quite a difficult adjustment. 
And not just that, but adjusting to the differences in food was hard. Food was provided in kitchens at the work camps, but because of rationing and difficulty in obtaining supplies and because cooks made whatever they wanted, um, it wasn't food that went down very well with the laborers. And, you know, after a hard day of work, you just want food that tastes good and that you enjoy. And if it's just unfamiliar and not appetizing, it's just hard to kind of stomach that every single day. They wouldn't be very happy with American sandwiches all the time when you grew up eating tortillas and beans. So that to me is very understandable. Another thing is that they had no choice in where they were sent. They had no idea at times where they were being sent. If they were sent north, like the Northwest states or Michigan or Minnesota, they weren't prepared for cold weather. They just came with the clothes that they were wearing. So going from, you know, a warmer climate like Mexico to further north, that would be quite a shock. Many were, if not most, were illiterate with very little education. And um, that was definitely exploited. Most of them only spoke Spanish. If they stayed relatively close to Mexico in states like New Mexico, Arizona, California, or Texas, there were built-in communities of Spanish speakers. But if they were sent further abroad into the U.S., this was not the case, which was lonely and isolating and left them open to greater discrimination. But that's not to say, like, discrimination was not present in these other more southern states. That, That was definitely there. In an oral history given by Cecilia Concha Estella, I'll actually be sharing part of it for our story highlight uh, in this episode. But she talks about how, um, living in Texas, how her father and her brother experienced a great deal of discrimination. And she gave an example of where her brother was on the high school football team And they went to an away game. And I guess a lot of the boys on the team were Mexican. And the coach, you know, they stopped to get food. And the coach had to get off the bus, go into the restaurant, buy food, and bring it back to the bus. Because they weren't allowed to go into the restaurant to eat. And she also talks about how she and her mother were barred from many types of employment because they were Mexican. And I know these aren't particularly Bracero examples, but it just gives you an idea of just the general discrimination faced by uh, Mexicans in the United States during that time. And then there was the backbreaking work, the stoop labor. Now, farmers justified this by saying, oh, Mexicans are good at it. They're shorter. So it's easier on their bodies than taller white people, and they're willing to do the work, etc., etc. In an oral history given by Jose Natividad Alva Medina, an ex-Bracero, in referencing stoop labor, he says, That's where we encountered El Cortito, or what's called the short-handled hoe. And for sure, that is where I shed my tears. These Mexican laborers were taken advantage of. They were pushed into non-field labor, which was in violation of their contracts. They were sometimes 
if not many times, paid below the minimum rate of pay, which was also a violation of their contract. When the Bracero program was fairly new, food processing and cannery operations wanted to employ them, but the extension service refused to certify contracts for them because, you know, on the grounds that the local labor would be displaced. But because labor shortages were so widespread and this Bracero program was so new and, you know, all these laborers are here, the growers hired the Mexican laborers in canneries and similar jobs anyway without the extension services approval. And this was in violation of the workers' contracts. Now, by employing them, it kind of forced the hand of the extension service to grant this certification for this non-field employment in 1943. This only heightened the demand so that two years later it was reported that many Mexicans were being used in canneries. This backfired on them, however, because when those important harvesting seasons came, where were all those vital workers? They were in the canneries, which also angered local workers. Oh, it was a big hot mess. Another reality of the Bracero program was that errors in the payrolls would go unchecked. Farmers didn't usually get to know the workers on a first-name basis because just of the sheer number of Braceros and the language barrier was difficult. So they relied on the ID numbers to record the Braceros daily work, which weren't always recorded correctly. Experienced Braceros learned to check their daily work slips for accuracy Some employers were able to work out a better system using badges the workers would wear, which had their first and last names and ID number on them. So this way they could be given proper credit for their daily work. Another aspect is that 10% was taken from their paychecks. Like I mentioned earlier when talking about the contract terms, this was put into a Mexican bank account in their name. However, from what I've read in oral histories, Um, Many of them have never been able to claim that money, and some of them were still working to get that money. Um, I've read that it was perhaps corruption in Mexican banks, but I haven't been able to confirm that. But either way, they were not able to get that money back. Another reality was that, you know, they were separated from their families for long, long periods of time. But because they didn't know how to read or write, they were unable to write home. This wasn't the case for everyone, but in some of the oral histories I read, they did say that, you know, they just didn't hear from their father for a long time uh, because he couldn't write. Now, back home in Mexico, on the other side of things, you know, towns were emptied of the menfolk for the most part, leaving women and children vulnerable to men who took advantage of them. And this is a really sad part of that story. I also read this uh, oral history given by Rosa Maria Navarro. She was talking about her father, Gennaro, who was a bracero. And she talks about how he was made to donate blood every eight days so that it could be sent to the soldiers fighting in World War II. And she had very strong feelings about this. She felt um, that I mean, when they heard from the consul in California that her father was ill, 
and he came back and told them that's what he had been doing was donating blood. They strongly suspected that's why he was ill was because he was donating blood so frequently for the soldiers and and so she just felt that not only were, you know, the Mexicans helping to save the crops of the United States, but because they were donating their blood for the soldiers that they were they were blood brothers. So I found this to be a very touching and difficult story. It was her opinion that both the United States government and the Mexican government had a role in exploiting the Braceros. This Mexican farm labor program was um, definitely not perfect. It provided these men with opportunities to earn money, but it's very terrible what they had to go through to achieve that. There are some positive notes that I wanted to make mention of. Mexican workers did strike for better wages. They walked out of fields to work at canneries, which had better pay. This caused problems because it's not what they had been brought to the U.S. to do, and it was uh, against their contract to do so. But they were taking things into their own hands for better pay. Another interesting positive note was that it was expected by the Mexican government that Mexican farms would benefit from all the experience their farm laborers were receiving on American farms. From the oral histories that I was studying, it seemed like a, a good majority of them ended up in the United States. They ended up living there, but I think the intention behind this was good. You know, they were using this opportunity to have their agricultural workers learn some, you know, new and better methods for farming and, you know, to improve farming in Mexico. I'm not sure what the outcome of that was, but the good intention was there. Another interesting thing I came across in a newspaper was that there were Mexican civic centers that were organized in cities as a place of community support for Mexican immigrants and local Mexican culture outreach. They held dances and celebrations with food. I even read in an article an instance where they helped some braceros who got stuck in Chicago without a place to stay. Uh, this article comes from the Chicago Sunday Tribune from August 12, 1945. It says, no matter what the problem is, members of the Mexican Civic Committee attempt to help those who call on them for aid. Recently, they came to the rescue of a group of braceros, Mexican workers brought to the United States under a six-month contract to help in war work. Stranded in Chicago without funds, the braceros were given food and lodging at the center until their difficulties were adjusted. And then has a picture of them dining uh, with uh, members of the Mexican uh, consulate in charge of imported Mexican workers. It says the Braceros are now doing agricultural work in South Bend, Indiana. So it was just really heartening to read. There were organizations in the United States that were there for, you know, Mexican support and outreach in, a, you know, in a country that wasn't always uh, the best at welcoming people who are different. I think, you know, as some final thoughts... From the Bracero History Archive website, its introduction concludes, In practice, employers ignored many of the rules and Mexican and Native workers suffered, while growers benefited from plentiful, cheap labor. And I think that kind of sums it up. The pressure and expectations placed on farmers and growers 
and the lack of available labor created this perfect storm in American society that in many ways hurt local workers and Mexican nationals who came here as our guests. It was an opportunity for Mexican laborers to earn money in the United States, but it came at the cost of their health, their family relationships, and their dignity as human beings. In the oral histories I read through, many of the Braceros look back on the experience as a positive one because they were able to provide for their family. They were able to send them money to bring back boxes of clothes. Their families were able to eat. And in some cases, they were able to bring their families to live in the United States, but they didn't all feel that way. One man, after his experience, had no desire to live in the United States, especially after his treatment there. Hundreds of these experiences of the Bracero workers have been recorded, and much more work is being done to study this time in our country's history. Why is it so important? It's not just to understand this part of social history or this part of agriculture and wartime rationing, but it's because this Mexican farm labor program is still being looked at today as a model for immigration policy. I encourage you to go through the resources on my blog to learn more because this is a piece of history still in motion and it will be interesting to see how it continues to shape the future. Today's cookbook feature is a very special cookbook called Elena's Famous Mexican and Spanish Recipes by Elena Zelayeta. This was published in 1944 and is a wonderful, wonderful collection of Mexican and Spanish recipes. And this, the introduction for this book is actually introducing Elena. And this introduction was written by Catherine Carey. And she says, I wish I had the power to let you know my friend Elena as I know her. First, let me tell you, Elena is blind. Not the blindness that evokes pity, for Elena is a bouncing ball of pep, gaiety, kindliness, and heart. A heart so big it encompasses all she meets. Elena, born in Mexico City, spent her childhood in the little mining town El Mineral del Oro where her parents were the village innkeepers. It was in this setting Elena learned the magic of foods. Ten years ago, after she had come with her parents to the United States, had married, born two sons, and owned her own restaurant, she lost her sight. Those were tragic days for Elena, days of bitterness, financial worry, groping in the darkness. Then she began to think. She made up her mind. She would not penalize her loved ones for her misfortune. To this tremendous problem, she applied the same determination that she had used in overcoming other obstacles. The depression, for example, when her magic cooking fingers had helped them through. To know real happiness, you should know Elena. This book of her own much-used recipes is just one expression of Elena's love of people. Her knowledge of how to make them happy. Each recipe is a shining star of courage, faith, and hope, plus a full measure of gastronomic enjoyment for you who use them. I found Elena's story really inspiring. I can't imagine, you know, losing your sight and then continuing to cook and uh, still using her skills to bless the lives of other people. I just, I really admire that as a cook myself. Wow. Just, yeah. <laughs> and you can really feel the that love that this woman is talking about. You can feel that in, in these recipes. 
each section of this cookbook, there are um, different um, chapters, soups, eggs, fish and fish sauces, tortillas, tacos, tostadas, enchiladas, tamales, meats, chicken, salads, vegetables, beans, desserts, and baked treats, miscellaneous, menus for typical Mexican meals, and then life at home in Mexico. Those are the different um, sections in this book, and they are just full of amazing recipes. And at the beginning of each section, she has kind of like a little cultural note about the foods in that section. So I will have pictures of this cookbook on my blog, of course, as always, and including a picture of the pages at the back where she talks about uh, life in Mexico. And this is really fascinating. I encourage you to go and read this because it just debunks. Uh, and she even talks about this, how she is debunking myths about Mexican food. And she has a lot of important things to say that I think a lot of people could relate to. So definitely go and read what she's got to say. <laughs> um, but I want to tell you about the two recipes that I tried. I wanted to try Mexican food that I had never tried in any restaurant. I wanted to kind of surprise myself <laughs> and and stretch myself as a cook. And just by going through her book, I have learned so much uh, about Mexican food, at least in the 40s. <laughs> I'm not sure how much Mexican food has changed or not, but um, there are so many recipes in here I want to try. It was hard to pick one. So I chose Torta Azteca. And this is a casserole Aztec style. It's pretty simple and straightforward. It just uses tor eight tortillas and chorizos, just four. These are Mexican sausages. Then grated cheese, one pound of Monterey cream cheese. And this I found is just Monterey cheese. <laughs> then six hard boiled eggs, then onion, tomato puree, green chilies, oregano, a bay leaf, salt and pepper. And those last items from the onion to the salt and pepper, all of those things make the sauce. So you gently fry the tortillas in oil and you set those aside. Then you cook the chorizos um, out of their skins. So you crumble the meat and then you cut the Monterey cheese into cubes. I cut them into pretty small cubes. And then you slice the hard-boiled eggs. Those are going to be kind of the components to all the layers of this casserole. Then you make the sauce and you simmer that for a while, like 30 minutes. This is a very interesting sauce. I It was not like any sauce that I've made because, you know, like typical American Mexican food it has to have cumin in it for to in my mind for it to be like Mexican food this has not there's no cumin to be seen and so I was like this is great I'm I am expanding my horizons and so man I just feel so sheltered what's wrong with me <laughs> and so anyway this um this this was quite the adventure. I enjoyed making this dish. So so in a, a large casserole dish, you take your tortilla, your first tortilla, and then you 
crumble the chorizo and then some of the cheese. And then you put some of the sliced hard-boiled eggs and then you put some sauce. And then you put on another tortilla and then you just keep going with each layer. And as I was making this, it felt like the layers never ended. Like it really just kept going and going. And I realized I actually needed more chorizos. Like I don't know how big their sausages were back then. The ones I had were pretty small. So I actually ended up using like six, I think. And this was is all layered up. And then you slather the rest of the sauce over the top. And then sprinkle the grated cheese over the top. The great thing about Monterey cheese, it's a fairly soft cheese. Well, it's firm, but it's just got a good softness to it. And it melts extremely well. So uh, you put it in the oven and you just let it bake for 30 to 45 minutes at 350. And um, to serve it, you cut it like a cake and like in slices and fresh out of the oven. Wow. It is so delicious. (laughs) It is, it is a really good casserole and you serve it with refried beans and it serves six. Wow. It actually, I think could easily serve eight. It is massive. (laughs) So, um, yeah, this, this was good. Unless, okay, see, this is where serve like the sizes of things. I don't know the sizes of the tortillas that they're talking about. I just use regular size, not burrito size tortillas, but just kind of regular size tortillas. So they could have been talking about smaller tortillas. I don't know. So this is where it's just a mystery because we don't know the sizes of tortillas in the 1940s. Um, At least I don't. Um, But anyway, it was delicious. I highly recommend this recipe to try it. And you can see how experienced I am with Mexican food. I am not that experienced. (laughs) And so I, just so you know, I am keeping this cookbook in my kitchen because I want to learn a lot more from Elena. She has a lot to teach me. So for the second recipe, I want to try a dessert. As always, I'm a sucker for desserts. So I tried a dessert called Leche Camada. Now, I actually did not make the leche camada recipe. I went to her notes for the recipe and made the shortcut recipe. (laughs) So I feel bad about that. I kind of want to go and make the, you know, like legit stir it for two hours recipe, which is a quart of milk, a cup of sugar, three quarters cup blanched almonds that are ground and then two sticks of cinnamon and that's what you cook uh, for a long time on low heat and I I just want to do it I just want to commit to it and make it but I didn't have that time so instead I did what she recommended as another option was to drop an unopened can of sweetened condensed milk into hot water and simmer for two and a half to three hours Now, I mean, it sounds like, yes, it takes longer, but you don't have to sit there and stir it um, to keep it from burning. But you do have to watch it because you don't want your can to explode because the water got too low. So you have to keep it covered in water, like an inch of water. 
after it's simmered for that amount of time, you cool it and remove from the can and serve. And it makes this really thick. I mean, it's dulce de leche if you've ever had that. It's just really thick caramelized sugar milk stuff. It's so good. And so then she says a delicious combination may be made by placing on a plate a slice of pineapple, then a heaping tablespoon of this leche quemada, a teaspoon of whipped cream, and a sprinkling of chopped walnuts. All this may be topped with a marchino cherry. So that is what I made. I did not add the walnuts, but I just, I did everything else. So I did the pineapple with this leche quemada and whipped cream and the marchino cherry. And it was quite tasty. Very refreshing for like a warm summer evening. Of course, we're not going into a summer evening these days, at least not here where I live in Maryland. But I don't know. You can have this any time of the year, really. It's just very tasty and not too sweet. That's the other thing. If uh, you want something that's on the less sugary side, this is definitely a good dessert to try. So as always, I will have these recipes on my blog for you to try if you'd like and enjoy. Today's story highlight comes from an oral history given by Cecilia Concha Estella. She was born in El Paso, Texas in October of 1925. And she was the second generation in her family to be born in the United States. Um, Her grandfather immigrated into the United States through El Paso, Texas. And um, in her oral history, she recounts some of her memories of World War II. And this was an oral history that I found from the University of Texas at El Paso from the Institute of Oral History. In this interview, she was being interviewed by a woman named Mirna. And Mirna is asking her a little bit you know, to tell her a little bit about World War II. Cecilia remembers that her father worked in construction, um, but because of the war, he was out of work because they were not doing much construction at the time because there weren't enough materials. And so they were, uh, they didn't have a lot of money, especially for, um, she wanted to get a fancy dress for prom <laughs> and so he told her to go talk to her aunt and so she was able to get some money from her aunt to buy herself uh, a dress for prom and so she talks about how she graduated in 1945 and she says okay all the boys were gone of course they're at war so when we had our junior prom in school. We didn't have any boys to invite to our prom. They were all gone and the ones who were behind were too young. I remember I had a friend. He's still a friend, but he was my age or maybe a year younger. Um, and they wanted uh, seniors at their prom. <laughs> she says, we didn't want sophomores in our prom. So, so that was a big problem. There's no boys to invite to our prom. Who's going to take us to our prom? With the war, there was a scarcity of shoes, leather, There was Juarez. We could buy shoes in Juarez, she says. Then she talks about how they started seeing a bunch of soldiers in town, but her mother and father did not like her talking to them because they just came from who knew where and they didn't want them mixing with the soldiers or dancing with the soldiers. (laughs) 
she says the families were very strict about their girls getting mixed up with the soldiers who were coming through here. They were stationed at Fort Bliss and who knew who they were coming from other places. The culture was so different. I think this is a really interesting look at a teenager's life in wartime. Maybe an aspect that we don't always think about that, you know, life was still going on for these kids that they wanted to have a prom and these poor girls had no one to dance with and they didn't want to dance with like young boys. <laughs> I don't blame her for not wanting to dance with sophomores. But, um, but then on the other hand, you've got these parents who are concerned, like they didn't want their daughters dancing with these strange soldiers who came from all over the place. Um, they didn't know anything about them. They didn't know their families. They didn't know, you know, they were just here and then gone again. And, um, and as we all know, you know, there's a lot of whirlwind romances from world war two. And, um, I can understand that her parents did not want their children involved in things like that. So just a really interesting viewpoint of um, home front life for teenagers in World War II. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I am going to be taking a break, uh, a writing break for November. I'm going to be participating in NaNoWriMo. And if you're not familiar with this, it's where you attempt to write 50,000 words in one month, essentially an entire novel. So I will be working on my fairy tale retelling that I am writing. And uh, here goes, <laughs> folks. Let's see if I can get it written in one month. Um, wish me luck. And I will see you on the other side. I will be working on my um, my last episode for the season in December and uh yeah then taking another little break before we launch right into season four and that is i've got some really exciting things planned for that already so lots of things coming up and um yeah i am so excited for uh things that are in store thanks again so much for listening and i will talk to you next time bye